You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with David Story and Jacob Morrison. The time has come for America to hear the truth. We are going to stand with them, and not only are we going to fight for their rights, but we're going to stand up for our rights here in our state, in our homes, and in our community. United States of America is not going to be decided in the courts. It's not going to be decided in Congress. It's not going to be decided on talk radio, and it sure is not going to be decided on Fox News. For the union makes us got Dr. Susie Lee on the line. But before that, last weekend, uh, I started with where you can find us. And I think that went well. So I'm just going to uh, I'm just going to keep doing that instead of hoping that I can fit it in on the back end because I'm never very good at that. Uh, so we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash Valley Labor Report. We're also on YouTube. You can search the Valley Labor Report. We're on Twitter at Labor Reporters. I'm on Twitter at Jacob M underscore A L. David is on Twitter, at Radical Unionist. That's spelled R-A-D-I-C-L, Unionist. There's no A uh, in between the C and the L. You can support the show by going to patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. And if you've got questions during the interview, tweet us at Labor Reporters, and we may ask your question on the air. After the interview, if you'd like to chat with us, call 1-866-494-9866. So, on to the interview. Like I mentioned, we've got Dr. Susie Lee on the line, and she's going to be talking to us about immigration, and specifically, her case for open borders. Before that, though, I do want to kind of set the stage. Um, I wanted to do this interview because I felt like it was relevant in a couple of ways. And I'll say just for the record that this interview was more spearheaded by me. Um, this is a place where David and I diverge on some of our opinions, and that's okay. You know, dialogue is important. Uh, but I, I thought this interview would be relevant and fruitful for a few reasons. Firstly, there are huge uprisings against police brutality across the country, and lots of folks are realizing for the first time that these issues are real, and immigration is another area where we in America have a militarized police state. Border Patrol agents routinely destroy food and water left for migrants for no other reason than cruelty. ICE detention centers, which largely hold nonviolent people, have become hotbeds for the coronavirus. In fact, last week, The Intercept came out with a report revealing that ICE has been deporting coronavirus patients instead of treating them, creating problems for poorer countries with more fragile health systems, all the while not isolating them and allowing other detainees to be infected. We know that, uh, as I've mentioned on the show multiple times, ICE is being used as a tool for the boss to suppress organizing efforts by raiding workplaces and deporting workers fighting for better working conditions, all the while letting the boss get off scot-free. So... As we have these conversations around police brutality, it's not unreasonable to tie that abuse uh, to tie in that conversation to the abuse that immigrants face at the hands of our immigration system. And naturally, the conversation that comes out of that is, what should our, what should our immigration system look like? Is unrestricted immigration the answer? I'm not sure, but I think it's worth considering. Secondly, today is the Fourth of July. 
It's Independence Day. This is the day that we as Americans celebrate independence from the British. And over the years, this has become more or less a national pride day, a day to celebrate what it means to be American, whatever that means to you. And the question of immigration ties directly into what it means to be American and indulging in American iconography. One of the most ubiquitous American icons is the Statue of Liberty. A structure which, was, which has greeted generations of migrants and stands as a symbol of hope for weary travelers the world over and on which is inscribed the text, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, the tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. This statue was given to us in 1876, and this is important because at this time, America did have open borders. There were no federal immigration laws. Migrants the world over could come to this country with nothing but the clothes on their backs. Workers would come across the border, uh, workers from Mexico would come across the border daily for work and return home in the evening. Immigration was restricted for Asian immigrants only a few years later, but the border remained wide open for white migrants for decades afterwards. And that means that for most people listening right now, I know this to be the case for myself because I've traced my lineage back um, uh, uh, centuries in America, we are only here because of open borders. We are here because for the majority of the history of this country, there have been no restrictions on immigration for people that look like us. We would not be here but for the grace of God and open borders. So it makes sense to ask if it's right for us who are here by the grace of God and by open borders, if it's right for us to deny to others the very means by which we arrived, is it right and is it even American? Finally, the issue of immigration is, in my opinion, a very important one for labor, wherever you come down on the issue, because it is very apparent that our current immigration system is hurting workers, immigrant and native. We can see it just south of here, in fact, where multiple chicken plants are staffed by large portions of immigrant and often undocumented workers. It's undeniable that their lack of documentation makes them more easily exploitable and because um, although they theoretically have the same rights to unionization, the same labor labor rights, uh, and the rights to appeal to the government in case of mistreatment and unsafe working conditions, they lack the simple right to be here. And this fact can and is exploited by the boss. So the question is, what is to be done? Do we rip undocumented workers out of their communities and send them back to the countries to their countries of origin? Do we grant amnesty and increase border militarization yet again? Or do we return to what some might say to be a truly American immigration regime, one in which the ability to migrate to this country is the rule rather than the exception? This is the side that some labor leaders have come down on in the, pa- in the past. Uh, Eugene Debs, a founder of the IWW, a uh, leader of the great and historical Pullman strike, said in a letter on immigration, 
The plea that certain races are to be excluded because of tactical expediency should have no place in a movement calling on workers of the world to unite for their emancipation. Away with the tactics which require the exclusion of the oppressed and suffering slaves who seek these shores with hopes of bettering their wretched condition. These poor slaves have just as good a right to enter as those who seek to exploit them. Exploit them. Exclude them, I mean. So, but this, this threat has not been consistent. Indeed, Cesar Chavez, a leader of the United Farm Workers, was famously anti-immigration. Um, so I think this is an important conversation, and I wanted us to have it on the air. I don't think we'll be coming to any firm conclusions today, but I hope it'll be a fruitful discussion. And to, to have this, this discussion with us today, as I said, is Dr. Susie Lee. She is the author of an article in in the uh, uh, in Catalyst, which is a peer-reviewed journal uh, called "The Case for Open Borders," and that's how she came across my radar. She is an assistant professor at um, at Binghamton University in New York, and um, she's an assistant professor in the Department of Human Development at Binghamton University in New York. Her research focuses on immigration policy, labor, and political economy. She's also a sister, something that I didn't realize until last night, a member in good standing of Binghamton's United University Professionals, as well as a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. She's on the editorial board of Catalyst. So without further ado or rambling on my part, I'd like to thank Mr. Lee uh, for coming and just give her the floor. Uh, Dr. Lee, could you um, give us a Reader's Digest version of of your case for open borders? Okay. Um, hi. Uh, Jacob, I can, I'm getting like a feedback where I can hear myself. I don't know. Okay. Can you hear me okay? Hello? Um, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. How's that? Is that better? Yes, that seems a little bit better. Okay. I'm not sure what I'd do, I can but... still. I can still hear myself, but there's like a loud feedback that happens. Okay. All right. But I can make this work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm I'm sorry about that. Maybe uh, you can just uh, um, put the put the uh receiver part away from your ear so you're not hearing your feedback and then and then you can listen back i'm sorry i'm not really sure uh, i'm not really sure what to do about it like i said uh, david david wasn't able to come in today so i'm i'm manning the board and i don't usually do that so um sorry uh, about that that's okay i'll try to make do <laughs> let me know if you have trouble hearing me at any point sure sure okay thank you so much for having me here um i'm, I'm really excited to be here and to be talking to you i'm really excited to be talking to a labor audience um, I, I, this is exactly who I wanted to talk about these issues with, so um, I hope it's a good conversation. I'm sorry that I'm not able to talk with David. Um, the Reader's Digest version of my case for open borders. Um, I think I'll start by saying that um, the reason that I wrote this article is that I think the way that we talk about immigration in the U.S. is not just really angry and toxic, but it's part, fundamentally harmful to the labor movement. Uh, the most important goal of this article wasn't just about defending the idea of an open border, but to try to change the way we talk about immigration and to talk about why it's important that labor talks about immigration in a different way. 
Um, so right now, I think the public de debate around immigration scapegoats two groups of people. One, we scapegoat immigrants, right? We call them criminals, and we say that they, they undermine our social safety net, they, they, make, um, they drive down wages, that sort of stuff. And most of what the defenders of immigration do is they try to fight against this type of scapegoating. They try to show why these claims are not justified. And I'm sure uh, a lot of you have heard a lot of arguments on both sides of this, and I'm, I'm not going to go into detail about that. What I'm more interested in is, um, is the way that it gets scapegoated, immigration scapegoats another group of people, and that's American workers, particularly white workers. Um, and that scapegoating goes something like this. It says, the reason why we have thousands of people in detention camps, people who work and pay taxes but don't get Social Security. Hello? Hey, uh, yeah, that, that's our buffer music uh, that we're going, coming to a break now, and we will uh, uh, okay. we'll talk to you some more on the other side. Sorry about that. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with David Story and Jacob Morrison. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time, but the attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maple, Tucker, and Jacobs at 855 617 9333 or visit online at www.mtandj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. All workers deserve fair wages, affordable health care, and a retirement plan that enables them to retire with dignity. All workers deserve to have a say about the terms and conditions of their employment, not just the bosses. With the Machinist Union's over 600,000 members having our back, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama has been serving workers' interests for over 20 years. Our members have the best health insurance in the area with zero deductible plans. We set the bar for pay in the area with over $40 an hour rates, consistently averaging the highest non-college degree jobs in North Alabama with some of the best retirement plans in the industry. We can do the same for you. Together, we remain united, raising our voices to ensure justice on the job and service in the community. The Machinist Union is a true Southern Union founded in Atlanta in 1888. We have been serving members' needs for 132 years. The longevity of our union proves our dedication and loyalty to the working class. The Machinist Union isn't just for machinists. We represent workers in government, health care, auto workers, aerospace workers, transportation workers, the defense industry, and woodworking. Our members even build the iconic Harley-Davidson motorcycles. If you're ready to get serious about better benefits and wages, if you want to have a voice in your workplace with over 600,000 members to back you up, call or email us today at 256-286-3704 or organize at iamaw44.org. Here in Huntsville, federal employees are an invaluable part of the nation's defense, offering unmatched expertise in engineering and technology and as stewards of taxpayer dollars. What we ask for in return is to be treated with fairness, dignity, and respect. The American Federation of Government Employees, AFGE, Local 1858, is a union of working people looking out for each other, making sure that we're treated right. To inquire about joining or to learn more, call 256-876-4880. Hey, y'all. Are you tired of hearing that the South is just a bunch of racist rednecks? 
or tune in to Dixieland of the Proletariat podcast. We talk about Southern working class history and current events through a leftist perspective. Join Nelson, Senior Telecommunications Director Tommy, Comrade Kate, former pig farmer Tyler, and Brother William, wherever you stream your podcast. And good Lord willing, the creek don't rise. We'll see you all next time. It's Dixieland of the Proletariat, y'all. WVNN. My name is Jacob Morrison. On the line, I have Dr. Susie Lee. She is an assistant professor at Binghamton University in New York. She is on the editorial board of Catalyst. She is a union sister in good standing, a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, and she is here giving us her case for open borders. So we kind of, uh, I rambled on for a long time. I wanted to give a good intro because I think that this is, you know, this is kind of a controversial topic. So I wanted to, uh, I wanted to, to kind of set the frame for the discussion, so to speak. So uh, thank you for indulging me on that. We left off. You mentioned how um, you were you were you were talking about how the current way that we talk about immigration kind of pulls people apart, uh, including white uh, the white working class. So if you could uh, it, just pick up where you left off, and uh, and during this segment, I'm probably you're uh, I'm just gonna give the floor to you most of the time. I think. <laughs> okay. Sure. Sure. Thanks. Um, so what I was saying was that there's another group of people who get scapegoated when we talk about immigration, and that's white workers, right? Um, and what the story is something like um, the reason that we have all these human rights violations, why we get children separated from their parents, uh, you know, that kind of stuff, is that the American working class is, is nativist, it's racist. It's the kind of thing that Hillary Clinton means when she says deplorables, right? <laughs> that's what she's talking about. <laughs> like sure. all these human rights violations are the fault of American working people. And again, um, the assumption behind it is that these people are primarily white. The point of my article is to show that that's not true, right? The reason that we have all these human rights violations isn't because of working people um, of any race, but because of the bosses, because of capitalists. They have the money and power to decide what kind of immigration policy we have. They pay for CNN and Fox News and get to decide how the pundits talk about immigration. And capitalists have an economic and political interest in things being this way, right? So um, in immigrants and working people being scapegoated and pitted against each other. So this is a labor radio show, so I imagine your audience probably already knows that. But um, a lot of the public discourse around immigration assumes that um, employers, the bosses, um, support immigration and open borders um, because having more workers in a labor market drives down competition, uh, drives up competition and drives down wages, that sort of stuff, so it benefits them, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I love Bernie Sanders, but he says that open borders is a Koch brothers conspiracy, right? And we say that it's a Koch brothers conspiracy because we say, well, the Koch brothers would want there to be open borders because, again, this whole thing about competition and driving down wages. Um, what I'm arguing is that that's only half of the story. So I would say, yes, they do have that interest, but immigration only has the function of driving down wages um, when the new workers who come in don't have rights to organize or join a union. So the bosses never just support immigration. They are always kind of trying to do this balancing act between the flow of workers that they want to come, but making sure that the workers that do come in don't have meaningful rights, that they can't join unions, that they can't be um, organized um, to defend themselves. Um, so... But when you're, um, you're not, um, but, so they, they're always trying to do this. You know, the ideal world that they want is a lot of workers coming in with absolutely no rights, right? But that's not really possible to get because not a ton of people are going to come to your country if you're, if they're not going to, if you're not going to give them any rights, right? Like mm -hmm. if we said, you can come here, but you have to be a slave forever, right. who would come 
in that situation, right? That's the most extreme situation of no rights. The only people who would come in those cases are the people who have something worse at home, right? If they're being, if they're facing death or starvation. So, so capitalists are always trying to do this balance of trying to offer just enough rights so that there will be some flow, enough of a flow that it meets their needs, right? The thing um, that I want that I point out in my article is that right now, what cap- capitalists need in terms of labor has changed a lot. So they don't actually need much of a labor flow. We're living in a period right now where the bosses can offshore so much production, right? They can send a lot of jobs. We know this, right? But what's happened to America in the last 40 years is this, this, you know, the offshoring of so much of our job of our jobs, right? Mm-hmm. That means they don't really need a flow. They don't really need a strong flow for them to keep making money, right? They can keep production by doing it some other way, right? They can send it to Mexico, they can send it to China, and they have done already, right? Um, if, the, if immigrant workers come here and they work for cheap enough that they can make money here, sure, they'll stay, but they don't have to stay, right? Um, on top of that, things are so bad in so much of the world that immigrants will come even if we don't give them any rights and we threaten to detain, detain them and deport them, all this stuff, right? All of this means that capital doesn't really care about the flow of migration. It doesn't matter too much. So when you're balancing flows and rights, it means the flow doesn't mean that much to them. Um, and that means that capital can really focus on making sure that immigrant workers don't get many rights. Right. What that means, what that translates to, is that the only interest capital has in immigration policy is that they is in making immigrant workers as vulnerable and weak as possible. And because immigrant workers are part of the working class as a whole, their vulnerability and their weakness means that the whole labor movement becomes weaker, right? Right. And so that's the, that's the, the general argument that, um, that, that I present in this article. Um, then I would say that the upshot of all of this is that the only, it, we end up landing at the idea of open borders because we say the way that we challenge this is to challenge the idea of borders themselves, right? How do we strengthen the labor movement? How do we make sure that immigrants have the right, have the ability to participate in the labor movement? How do we make it so that people aren't pitted against each other, right? How do we turn our attention to the bosses instead of against each other, right? And I argue that the way to do that is by is by opening up our borders. Yeah, that's that's or at least really talking about open borders. Right. That that's a really um, that's an interesting that's really interesting because I had never before I read your article I had never. Um, kind of thought about that, and and I, I just want to tease that out for a little bit. You you said that um, capital, the boss, corporate, um, you know, corporate oligopolies, like they are not dependent on a labor flow anymore. They can outsource production, they can automate it, and these are things. And and so really, they don't benefit. From a labor flow so much as they benefit from a divided working class. That is, that's really, um, I found that really illuminating. And, and, and you illustrated that by the fact that, yes, the Koch brothers do a lot of funding for the Cato Institute, which is a libertarian think tank that pushes open borders. But at the same time, they also put a lot of funding into these nativist, anti-immigrant think tanks and commercials and politicians. And so they're kind of having their cake and eating it too, so to speak. Like they're funding programs that that help uh, uh, or or that are pushing open borders, quote-unquote, but they're also pushing um, things that really demonize and divide immigrant workers from native workers. so, so that that's a, a a really important point that you make that I, that I wanted to kind of tease out. Um, 
And here's a question I, I did I do have though, um, and we're we're running out of time on this segment, so I'm going to pose the question, and then we can answer it on the other side. But the question is that. Um, you mentioned that a lot of these a lot of these uh, uh, workers are coming here because they're being pushed here. They're being pushed by a really, really, um, really bad life at home. And a lot. And what you didn't didn't mention is that a lot of that desperation is directly the function of U.S. foreign policy. So, do we do a disservice by advocating open borders and addressing the symptom rather than attacking the U.S. foreign policy and perhaps getting at the root of the problem? So that's my question. We're going to talk about that on the other side. Stay tuned. This is the Valley Labor Report. Ours are the first generations to feel the effects of climate change and the last to be able to do anything about it. The window to meet this historic challenge is closing. We're already losing our lives and livelihoods. Millions have already been impacted by climate change. We can passively accept this fate or we can join together and take back our power. If we so choose, our best days are ahead. We have a legacy of coming together to face crises that threaten the very ideals of our nation. From the horrors of slavery to the depths of the Great Depression, from the spread of fascism during World War II to the rise of Jim Crow, we have overcome before and we have the power to do it again. Let's end the climate crisis by igniting a transformational new era where the government works for the common good. Go to arminarmforclimate.org. That's arm in arm, the number four, climate.org to learn more. All workers deserve fair wages, affordable health care, and a retirement plan that enables them to retire with dignity. All workers deserve to have a say about the terms and conditions of their employment, not just the bosses. With the Machinist Union's over 600,000 members having our back, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama has been serving workers' interests for over 20 years. Our members have the best health insurance in the area with zero deductible plans. We set the bar for pay in the area with over $40 an hour rates, consistently averaging the highest non-college degree jobs in North Alabama with some of the best retirement plans in the industry. We can do the same for you. Together, we remain united, raising our voices to ensure justice on the job and service in the community. The Machinist Union is a true Southern Union founded in Atlanta in 1888. We've been serving members' needs for 132 years. The longevity of our union proves our dedication and loyalty to the working class. The Machinist Union isn't just for machinists. We represent workers in government, health care, auto workers, aerospace workers, transportation workers, the defense industry, and woodworking. Our members even build the iconic Harley-Davidson motorcycles. If you're ready to get serious about better benefits and wages, if you want to have a voice in your workplace with over 600,000 members to back you up, call or email us today at 256-286-3704 or Organize at IAMAW44.org. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with David Story and Jacob Morrison. Good morning, folks. This is the Valley Labor Report. Like he said, my name is Jacob Morrison, and uh, I'm here talking to Dr. Susie Lee. She is a professor at Binghamton University in New York, a uh, member of the United University professors at that college, and she's here uh, talking about her case for um, for an unrestricted immigration regime. And so I left off 
asking it, po- posing the question, you know, is advocating open borders or like an unrestricted kind of immigration regime, is that going at a symptom of the problem? And is that really going to attack the root cause? Because like she mentioned, a lot of these folks are coming here not because they like want to come to America. It's not so much a pull, like I really want to come to America. It's a push, like I'm trying to escape death and political persecution and poverty and and just horrible, horrible lives in their home countries. And the desperation in these home countries can oftentimes be tied directly to U.S. intervention in these uh, South and Central American countries um, with coups, overthrowing elected governments, um, instituting far-right, uh, fascistic kind of um, kind of governments that, that really, really just, just pummel the working people in, in those areas. So, so can you kind of um, talk to me? Uh, wh- what are your thoughts on that? Should we, be, should we be going after the United States foreign policy? Or, um, or, or should we, I mean, obviously, I, I think to some extent we, we should be doing both, but what should be our focus? No, I can hear you. Okay, sorry about that. <laughs> sorry. Um, so, so yeah, I, I asked you about, um, and, and you know, I've already reiterated it for the audience. I, I don't think they were hearing the, I don't think they were hearing the music. So, um, uh, so yeah, foreign policy versus immigration. What are your thoughts on that? Um, so I didn't, because of the music, I didn't hear exactly what you said, but I, I think I, I, I know the, the general argument, which is um, about how um, American foreign policy contributes to this stream of, of, um, of immigration that comes to our country, right? So we create the conditions for, that force people to leave their homes, right? right? Um, I mean, I think that, um, I, I mean, I think that I, I would agree with that sort of statement. Um, and I don't know if when you were talking about it, you also mentioned the role of capital, because again, it's one of those things where it's not like American workers are the ones who are who are demanding this sort of violent foreign policy, right? Um, the American workers aren't the ones that say, well, let's have this huge military and let's do all this stuff or let's engage in, in all of these, um, these invasions and, you know, and produce all of this stuff. These are decisions that are made by capitalists and, and, and a state that supports capital, right, and their imperialist projects. And so I would say that um, that w- the, how we stop all of that, whether, you know, that, that if we had, and, I mean, open borders, when I argue for open borders, isn't just open borders by itself, right? But a socialist idea of open borders that come, that is part and parcel of a much stronger labor movement that has the power to, um, one, get better conditions at work, but also in um, in our society for workers, but also that gives us more power in deciding, you know, what happens in the country and how America uses its power in the world. And I would argue that if we had that sort of world, we wouldn't have these invasions. We wouldn't be spending our money on her, you know, on all this stuff. And and the sort of the the positive fallout from that would be a lot more people would be free to stay home, right? And they wouldn't come here. And then a lot of this sort of negative feedback loop that we worry about, about all these, you know, a mass migration coming and affecting our country, these, these are things that we would have to worry less about. Right, right. Yeah, I think I think that makes uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. And and something that, that somebody commented on, on the uh, Facebook page, which is true, is that you can't outsource construction trades. But I think the rebut to that is that if you have a immigration re- regime where people are able to migrate legally 
where they have full rights as residents of the United States, they will not be so easily exploited. A big reason that people are so easily exploited is because they lack the right on paper to be here, right? So bosses can call in ICE like they did at the chicken plant in Mississippi and have um, dozens and dozens of workers uh, deported, Um and and then yeah. destroy organizing efforts there. Uh, you, you know, right. so like if we if we had a regime where people were legal, they wouldn't. Um, you know, they they wouldn't have they wouldn't be as easily exploited because they they would they wouldn't well, be so afraid to organize. I agree. The other thing, this idea that you can't exploit construction, this this person is absolutely right. You can't exploit construct. You can't export construction. It's really hard also to export. Um, it's hard to export farm labor. It's hard, also hard to export a, a bunch of services like healthcare and these sorts of things. But these are exactly the areas in which we have more immigrant workers. And the reason why is because that's where capital can't just get cheaper workers by going abroad. So they try to bring those workers here, right? Um, and so, so that's one of the reasons why it's really important for us to win more rights for immigrant workers and, and make sure that they have the right to be able to organize with us because they're in those sections where labor has leverage, right? If capital can't leave, right. then we have more power to be able to win things there, right? And that's where we have more immigrant workers, and so we have to get those immigrant workers to work with us, right? And construction is one of the areas, the few areas in which um, immigrant workers in some places like California, they're, they're you know significant minorities, right? And so if you're going to organize labor in those construction areas, you have to to have immigrant workers who have the power to, to organize with us, right? If, if they can't, if they're worried about being deported, if they, they, um, if they join a union, then the union is going to be weaker in those areas, right? Mm-hmm. So that's, um, that's, one, that's actually an argument, I think, for um, a greater expansion of rights for immigrants in that area. The other thing that I would say, though, is that um, if we're thinking about labor's power, not just with regard to the employer, but also in our society, right? If we want Medicare for all, if we want... Um, a stronger social safety net for all of us if we want to be able to have the power so that Amazon and all these huge companies pay their taxes, right? That the whole the labor movement as a whole has to be strong, right? And the thing is that um, the kind of leverage that we have, the, the sectors of our economy, right, that have um, where immigrant workers are important, it's construction, it's the services, it's agriculture. But these are all really not the, the bigger chunk, the more powerful parts of our economy is finance, Right, it's um, it's manufacturing, and so the in order for it's so we can't just say, well, this is the we'll protect construction jobs by not letting immigrants come in, and we'll protect um, agricultural jobs by not letting immigrants come in, and then you know, and that's how we'll win. We won't end up winning that way because that part of the economy that we're able to control is so small that we wouldn't that we sort of you know we wouldn't be able to we wouldn't be able to force the government to, for example, like give you know not give um, hundreds hundreds of millions of dollars in handouts to finance companies these sorts of things just because of the power in the construction industry right we need to have build power overall right and so it needs to be um, the strategy that we have to think about is one where we say. Um, that whatever gains we might make by not by successfully excluding immigrant workers from construction will be lost in the overall weakness of the of the labor movement in general in our fight against capital overall right to win better conditions nationally right right and 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 that 
I think that makes a lot of I, I that makes a lot of sense to me that by giving these migrant workers more rights, specifically like the right to be here uh, and and the ability to feel like they're not looking over their shoulder for ICE agents all the time, it will be good for native workers. This will help raise wages. It'll help raise benefits for native workers because the thing that is pushing down wages for native workers is not like the presence of migrant workers like that it, it, it's not just the it's not just the presence of migrant workers themselves that is is bringing down skilled legal representation for your oh. place injury claims when you were injured on the job it we're, we're on a commercial break the attorneys at maples tucker and jacobs have the experience to guide you through can the you process hear me Susie? to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected if you need help call the attorneys at maple tucker and jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtandj.com no representation is made that the quality of legal services is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Public schools are critical to the success of communities and democracy. Now more than ever, our educators and school support staff are going above and beyond to support our students and families. We at the Alabama Education Association are proud to represent the hardworking employees of our public schools and colleges. Thank you for all of your love and dedication to Alabama students. Please take care and stay safe. Ours are the first generations to feel the effects of climate change and the last to be able to do anything about it. The window to meet this historic challenge is closing. We're already losing our lives and livelihoods. Millions have already been impacted by climate change. We can passively accept this fate or we can join together and take back our power. If we so choose, our best days are ahead. We have a legacy of coming together to face crises that threaten the very ideals of our nation, from the horrors of slavery to the depths of the Great Depression, from the spread of fascism during World War II to the rise of Jim Crow. We have overcome before and we have the power to do it again. Let's end the climate crisis by igniting a transformational new era where the government works for the common good. Go to arminarmforclimate.org. That's arm in arm, the number four climate.org to learn more. The Valley Labor Report is also supported by listeners like you. If you value the work that we are doing, injecting a different perspective into talk radio, and you have the means, consider signing up for a monthly donation on patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash the Valley Labor Report to support our work and keep us on the air. Hey y'all, are you tired of hearing that the South is just a bunch of racist rednecks? Well, tune in to Dixieland of the Proletariat podcast. We talk about Southern working class history and current events through a leftist perspective. Join Nelson, Senior Telecommunications Director Tommy, Comrade Kate, former pig farmer Tyler, and Brother William, wherever you stream your podcast. And good Lord willing, the creek don't rise. We'll see y'all next time. It's Dixieland of the Proletariat, y'all. Stay informed and entertained all day long, only on WVNN. Good morning, folks. This is the Valley Labor Report. Sorry, I've been having I, I've been having just a rough time. <laughs> David David is out today, so I'm having a man the board. This is my first time man of the board, so I appreciate y'all staying with me, and I especially appreciate Dr. Lee staying with us. Um, uh, 
even through all these technical difficulties. So I, I appreciate her patience. I appreciate her willingness to be on the program. Where we left off, we were talking about how... You know, it's not like just, it's not the presence. There's not like some immutable characteristic of migrant workers, like being migrant workers that brings down the wages. It is their ability, it is the ability that bosses have to exploit them. And where does that ability come from? It comes from their lack of rights. So giving them like the right to be here is going to allow them to organize and to fight for better wages, better working conditions. And when they get better working conditions, better wages, so do native workers. Right, Dr. Lee? Sorry, the the lead in music was, um, I couldn't hear most of what you said. I just got the last bit. Sure, yeah. I said, um, uh, I, I, I just uh, said that, you know, it's not like the innateness. There's nothing like innate about migrant workers that make them bring down wages. It is, um, you know, it, it is the ability of the boss to exploit them. And if we take away the ability to exploit them, uh, specifically via deportation, that'll be good for migrant workers, yes, but also for native workers. Right. Yes, that's exactly it. Right. So, and I mean, this is something that people that I hear all the time, where they say, "Well, if more workers come, then there'll be more competition. The wages are going to be driven down." That this is this is you know, I'm I have no problem with immigrants. It's just that this happens, right? And 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 right. as somebody who's a working person, I have to be worried about this. This is what people say all the time, and I think it's a legitimate concern, except that there's another part of it, right, which is that this process of new workers coming in and wages going down isn't automatic. There's all these other things that matter. And the most important thing that matters is about the strength of labor organizing in an area, right? That, that what, Matt, what, determines the, um, what determines how much workers make on the job um, has much more to do with how organized they are and whether they're able to, to collectively bargain for better wages and better working conditions than the conditions of competition, right? So unorganized workers, yes, are very vulnerable to new workers coming in and competition and all this stuff, but organized workers are not, right? They're, and, they, and organized workers make much more then, you know, like if you if if um, if you have a, dec- an, a decrease in competition because the the the, um, the economy heats up or something like this, and you have less un- uh, unemployment, etc., you know, wages go up by like something like one percent, two percent, three percent. It's a little tiny bit, right? A good contract, you know, with a union that's organized mm-hmm. and strong, you know, they win wage increases that are like ten percent, twenty percent, right? It's, it's it's on a completely different order of magnitude, and they can keep those gains in ways that um, that you can't, if the economy goes down, then your wages get cut again. Like that kind of stuff happens much less when you're organized, right? So that, that it's really a, more important than the impact of immigrant workers on, you know, competition in any market is the organizing and the power of the labor movement, of the working class unified, right? And that's what's really important. And, and for that, you need work, every single worker to have the right to join the union, to have the right to organize and fight. And as long as you have some percentage of your workers who have to worry about getting deported, if, you know, get, get deported for any reason, but if they, you know, stick their head up in any way, they're going to get deported, then you're going to have a weaker labor movement, right? And it's not only about undocumented workers, but it's also about even immigrant workers who have papers, right? Because right now the way it works is 
if you have a green card, maybe you're okay. But if you come in with any sort of H visa that says that you're a guest worker, then you, your boss has so much power over you mm-hmm. because if they fire you, then you might not get deported right away, but you lose right. your visa to stay here. Right? Yeah, I mean, it, um, I mean, it's almost they, it's almost literally indentured servitude. I mean, you're it, right. No, exactly. I mean. Right. Literally, you are tied. Your ability to live in a place is tied to your employment. I mean, I don't. Right. You know, that's indentured servitude. Right. I mean, the only part is that that it's not. You, they they're not claiming that you owe them money, although sometimes they do. Right. Right. Um, but um, but yes, it it is that it it does create this sort of situation where your boss has so much power over you. So then, if some if one of your coworkers comes up to you and says, "Hey, would you like to join the union?" Their answer is most likely going to be like, well, I would love to, but if I do it, I might get fired, right? And yeah, exactly. it might, you know, it might be, you might be able to go to court and say that it was retaliatory firing, but you might lose, right? You're, right. The, the, you know, it's, the courts in this day and age aren't that friendly to workers. And if you lose, then you have to leave. And right? they're that slow. You lose your job. Right, and right, they're right. slow. So, I mean, seriously, these NLRB ta- cases, they can take years to right. reinstitute workers to give back pay. And by that time, somebody could have been deported back deported. to Honduras and murdered by then. I mean, literally, like that happens. Exactly. People are deported and they're, and, and they're murdered later. And, and you know, so, and, and, so the, like, the idea that the wage rate is set by the labor supply, the idea that the the benefits are set by the labor supply that's obviously that's one part but mm-hmm. if you look at it what you're what you're saying is and, and I think I think that if, if you look historically at the US and, and union density rates and and uh, mm-hmm. rising wages and everything you'll see that that's a smaller part when compared to the ability to organize the the wage rate mm-hmm. is not just set by the labor supply like that's not the only thing that goes into it it is also set by the ability of the of the boss to exploit the workers and when the boss can just call ICE agents to use them as a whipping tool against workers that are trying to organize, they have a mu- an exponentially higher ability to exploit workers than they do against native workers or against migrant workers who have the right to be here, independent of their mm-hmm. employment. Yes, I, you said it. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. So I think I think that's that's a very like important thing to to keep in mind when we have these conversations about immigration and um, uh, you know so so like I, I think that's an important thing to think about and I would really encourage people to go and read your article. Uh, it's titled "The Case for Open Borders." It was put out by Catalyst Magazine um, or, or Catalyst Journal. It's a peer-reviewed scholarly journal, um, and, and it's uh, it, it really does a good job of kind of laying out like what are the um, uh, you know what are the the pressures that affect wage rates, what are the and and how can we how can we combat them. Um, you know, because like I said, the labor supply is not the only thing; it's also the ability to organize. So. Um, you know we've only we've only got a few more minutes and then we're going to wrap up the interview but uh and and I know that this isn't this isn't like your your purpose uh you wanted to kind of your purpose was kind of to change the way that people think about immigration and I, I think that's a I think that's a good goal um so do you do you kind of have any well 
you like we've only got a couple more minutes, so why don't you just kind of give your give your closing thoughts? You know, there there are folks that are obviously going to be very skeptical um, about about this argument. They think that the the laws of supply and demand are incredibly obvious. The laws of you know more workers means lower wages. Um, that it, it means less jobs for native workers. You know, just make, kind of c- close out your argument. What would you say to folks like that in the audience? I mean, I think um, you're not wrong, but I'd say that there's another law, right? Um, and that's the law of union power, right? And it, that has been, it's something that we forget because in the U.S. the labor movement has been so weak for so long um, that we, you know, it, it was never, you know, it compared to other countries, um, especially European countries with strong social welfare states, our labor movement has always been much weaker. Our union unionization rates have always been lower. Even at the peak, it was never more than, you know, 30 or 40 percent. Um, but still, right now, I think our unionization rates across the country is something like 5 percent. So we're so weak, right? But the, but so we, do, we don't have the memory of feeling that other law that says that workers live better lives that are that we get that we make better wages that we have more power when we're strong when we're unified and when we're organized right and that all that stuff about competition and the market and how that works that only applies when unions are not weak when when labor isn't unified and able to collectively bargain and fight for their rights and for you know and not just for their rights to better wages, better working conditions, but also for their right to decide what happens in our country, right? How our laws work for us, how what the government does, that, how the strength of our democracy, that's all dependent on the strength of the labor movement, right? right. That's where it rests. And so, so, yes, those other laws of supply and demand and competition, that matters, but we have a, we have a way to fight it, and we need to use it. Right. And I think that that's why it's so important, the work that you're doing. Dr. Susie Lee... Thank you so much. You can find you can find arguments about the union advantage on our YouTube page. Uh, that we did a really good vi- video going through all that. So, Dr. Susie Lee, thank you so much for talking to us. I appreciate the opportunity to do this, and uh, you can find her work at Catalyst Journal. Um, you can Google Catalyst Journal, find her work. This is the Valley Labor Report. Stay tuned. WVNN, depend on it. I've got on the line. David Story. David, thanks for hey. calling in. Good morning. All right. Good morning. Good morning. Got you. Uh, give me another good morning. Good morning. All right. All right. Got you turned down a little bit. Uh, so, David and I are both obviously in the labor movement, and boy, are there big things happening in our unions. So, Dave, I'm going to let David go first and talk to us about what in the world is happening up in Maine with the Machinist Union Local S6. Yep. So, uh, the Machinist Union Local S6, and uh, they are working for Bath Ironworks, and uh, what they've done is uh, they've done a lot of the Navy equipment on um, on as far as the destroyers and things like that goes, and uh, they come up for contract negotiations a few weeks ago, and the company has decided that they wanted to, I guess they've been outsourcing some jobs, but the outsourcing of jobs had to be approved by the union to give them an opportunity to provide alternate uh, uh, resources to those outsourcing in the past, and uh, 
during this during this big contract negotiation, they've decided that they just want to take all that on uh, themselves and not to give the company or the union any opportunity to have a say so in that. And uh, it's going pretty bad. They're out on strike right now. Uh, the one thing, you know, the one thing that one of the big things is, uh, of course, the outsourcing and, and to non-union uh, shipbuilders in the area or trades in general, I should say, because all that does is weaken the union internally. But they're also uh, one of the things that they're doing is trying to uh, uh, usurp seniority rights. So, but basically, in, in, in a nutshell, the way that works is uh, when you're in the trades, like you're a welder, you're an electrician, you're a precision mechanic, what have you, you, you once you've got seniority, you kind of stay in your own shop and you do electrical work or you do uh, what, whatever it may be, a painter or what have you. The company has uh, wanted to do away, I know this new contractor wanted to do away with those rights completely and basically say, regardless of seniority, even if you've been, if you've been an electrician in the, in the trade for 40 years, uh, they can move you over to janitorial services or, or uh, maybe to grinding in the paint shop or something like that. And basically, it's an underhanded way of just trying to cut the union, the union's rights completely out and make it to where it's not worth even having a union there anymore. Right, right. That, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. And, and so what is, I think, the lesson to take from this is we, we obviously, we don't know what's going to happen, right? We don't know. This is a strike, and it just ha- it just started, what, a week ago, maybe? So this this is not, unlike a lot of the stories that we talk about, there's no resolution here yet. So we don't know what is going to happen, but regardless of what happens, the fact that these folks are organized and they have a union and they have this way to go about actually calling a strike, that I think is important because it shows that unlike in these non-union places, these folks are ready and educated about their ability to fight back. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, that, that, that's the only reason that they're able to have any say on their job is because they're unionized and because they've decided enough is enough. You know, they're six months behind right now on their uh, latest project. So that looks real good for them. Uh, and they're going into federal mediation this upcoming week, which don't look real good because any time a federal mediators get involved, uh, they want concessions on both sides, but normally they want more concessions from us than they want from the company. So, uh, but, but they did want me to point out that they, you know, that you can find them on uh, Facebook at Machinist Union Essex, uh, local Essex, and if they have a PayPal account there, if anybody wants to donate, they'll to help out to all the members on strike. That'd be a great thing. Yes, and uh, you know you can like call them and see when they're going to be eating lunch, and maybe you can like send them a pizza or something. These are things like obviously I would really like to be out there on the picket line with them, but. Um, but that's not something that, you know, that's not something that I can do <laughs> there in Maine. So, yeah, yeah. you know, um, but, but, you know, and so, there's 4,300 of them. So I don't think one pizza will cut it, but you know, right. a small donations <laughs> will help them 
get yep. things that they need, you know, whether it's because right, right. now, I, I mean, it's hot here, but it's hot in Maine as well, believe it or not. And so bottled water, even a couple of cases of bottled water goes a long way to helping everybody out. Right. Yeah, I you know, and th- this is important stuff. You know, we are a local, um, we're a local show, so usually we like to cover or, or we like to talk about things that impact the local community. But we're also, you know, we're also members of these unions, and they've done a lot for us. And uh, so we want to we want to make sure that we can help them out where we can, even if that is just alerting people to what to what their bosses are trying to do and and their ability to fight back and and you know the fact that the fact that this this like chapter so to speak hasn't closed you know i don't know if it's going to be a hopeful story in the end but i think i i mean i said this i i'm just going to reiterate it i really do think that it's it's a hopeful story and it's an educational story just the fact that they are fighting back that they have the ability to fight back that they have the knowledge of how to fight back and why do they have that because of the union, because they are organized, because they are a union. And, you know, if this if this happened at a place where where there where the workers weren't organized, you know, uh, there's not much that the workforce could do about it or there's not much that the workforce would even know how to do about it. You know, if they don't have a union, if they don't have these the educational stuff that that unions provide um, and just the solidarity, you know, if you go in and you work with somebody you, you may not feel that much of a kinship with them, but actually being organized with somebody, being in a union, that being your family, your brothers and sisters, I mean, that it, it does something, um, and I think most uni- a whole lot of union members can attest to this, it really does something um, to how connected you feel to these people and how much you're willing to do for these people and how much they're willing to do for you. Yeah, and one thing, you know, you were talking about uh, the longevity of you know th- this isn't this isn't a place that was just organized a couple of weeks ago. You're talking about a shipbuilding uh, trades group that has been doing this work since 1884. 1884, you know. So they they've been around the block a few times and they know what it takes to build a ship, probably better than what uh, General Dynamics or Bath Ironworks does. So yeah. Yeah, I think they're going to be they're going to be good, but you know, any show of solidarity always goes a long way. Yeah, absolutely. David, thanks for calling in and telling us about that. Um, and like David has that story in his union, there's something really big that's happening in my union as well. I'm a member of the American Federation of Government Employees, and so um, you know, David walked through the big story that's happening in his union and. And now it's now it's my turn. Um, but the the United um, the uh, uh, the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services has given notice to more than ten thousand federal employees that they are being laid off. And uh, so right off the bat, you know, there's a question that a lot of you and a question that I had at first um, when I heard United States. United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, what do they do? Like, are they, um, you know, and and so the answer is that they administer the country's immigration and naturalization system. So when asylum seekers come, they need USCIS workers to fill the paperwork. When someone wants to take their citizenship test, the USCIS workers perform it. This is an incredibly important agency, and the, the administration is looking to lay off more than half of its employees. The rationale is that there has been a budget shortfall driven by a lack of user fees being paid because of the pandemic. 
Um, and so AFGE has been pushing for a $1.2 billion appropriation to meet that shortfall, and that has not happened. But that's much like the appropriation being proposed by the United States Postal Service. And these two requests for appropriations are similar in that they are a drop in the bucket compared to what is what has been given without strings attached, essentially, to corporate oligarchs. Um, that was one solution, but another solution that just opened up was that DACA was saved, for the moment anyways, by the Supreme Court. DACA applications cost $500 apiece, and there are thousands upon thousands of DACA recipients or DACA-eligible people that are ready to renew their applications. I'm not sure if that would completely make up for the budget shortfall, but it would be something. Instead of saying, hey, we want to not lay off these workers, let's go ahead and start filing these DACA DACA applications— USCIS is still not taking DACA applications. They have also not signaled a change of course regarding the layoffs as a result of DACA being saved. So, this is when we get to the grift. They don't want a solution. They don't want the gears of government to turn smoothly. They don't want to help immigrants who are doing literally exactly what they are told that they need to do. They're getting in line. They're paying their taxes. They're registering with the government because these folks, they don't reckon there should be a line. Remember, Bannon said that the goal of the Trump administration is to dismantle the administrative state. And this is what the administrative state does. Like, we need things to be administered. I mean, this is important work that happens. The administrative state does important work, and, the, and its destruction is detrimental to our nation. Not only the nation, but of course, it's terrible for the immigrants. It's terrible for the workers at USCIS. It's terrible for people in industries that these immigrants work at because they're going to lose their protections. Getting and but, but, but the workers at USCIS, I mean, my goodness, getting laid off in the capitalist dystopia of the United States in 2020 means what? It means you lose your health insurance in the middle of a pandemic. It means you get thrown on unemployment, the additional payments for which may not be extended. And you you're, and and with without the additional um, the additional unemployment payments, you're expected to be able to pay uh, your own insurance or pay for your own hospital bills, which would be even more states in 20 20- I mean, this is just completely unnecessary, flippant, and extensive damage that is being done to public servants, to workers, to immigrants who are doing exactly the right thing, exactly what they are being told they have to do by these people. Completely unnecessary, flippant, and extensive damage being done to all of these folks, to these dedicated public servants, because um, they're—I mean—they're being sabotaged by a malicious administration. It—that's—that's that's the only way that you can describe it. It's malicious. They don't like. They don't care about workers. They don't care about immigrants. They don't care about the um, the well-being of the country. I mean, it's crazy. If, this is insane, laying off almost like more than 10,000 workers in the middle of a pandemic. No health insurance. It's crazy. Folks, we've got one more segment. This is the Valley Labor Report. Stay tuned. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. 
When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. But the attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maple, Tucker, and Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtandj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. For this last segment, I wanted to talk about something that anybody, anywhere, this is relevant to you. I know we've got a lot of national listeners uh, tuning in uh, with the Machinist Union and AFGE, and we've got a lot of folks listening on the radio, online. This is something that, that I believe this is, this is something that everybody can take to heart. I have gotten multiple people asking me, what are the responsibilities of the employer when an employee tests positive for the coronavirus? Are they mandated to uh, close for two weeks? Are they mandated to have everyone tested? Are they mandated to give the person time off? Um, are they mandated to wait until everybody has been tested and their results come back? You know, because they wouldn't be supplying the testing. The tests are free, as far as I know. But, uh, folks, as far as I can tell, the answers are no, 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 and no. If you recall, we even covered several weeks ago when the governor signed an executive order decreasing the already sparse liability that an employer has to an employee regarding falling ill at work. The... Um, and there's a law that was sponsored by State Senator Arthur Ord that is going to do the same thing, and even more uh, it, it going through the uh, the Alabama Senate. It, the government, especially the Alabama government, is not riding in on a white horse to save you. Okay, um, and and that's you know that's really bad news. Uh, that that is really bad news. Um, but I have good news. Okay, like, like the gospel, there's bad news, there's the bad news of sin, but then there's the good news of Jesus. Okay, so here we've got the bad news that the employer is not obligated to do anything for you. <laughs> your, your boss isn't obligated to care about you, okay, by the government. But here's the good news. The good news is that you and your fellow workers can do something. Organizing is your best hope in this situation to make your workplace safer. And though the government won't make your employer pay you for leave or close until tests can be done, you're organizing and potentially striking over unsafe working conditions is absolutely protected by labor law. I have a book here called Labor Law for the Rank and Filer. I would really recommend it. It is a short read. It is accessible. Like By accessible, I mean the language is easy to read. If you have concerns about your workplace and you're wondering, where am I protected? What can I do? Um, you need to read Labor Law for the Rank and Filer. It's a really good, it's a really good just synopsis of, of the rights that you have under uh, the National Labor Relations Act. But I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote from it here a little bit. Quote, second only to the right to equal treatment, the right to refuse unsafe work may be the right best protected by labor law. To begin with, Section 502 of the National Labor Relations Act, which the Taft-Hartley Act did not change, states that 
the quitting of labor by an employee or employees in good faith because of abnormally dangerous working conditions shall not be considered a strike under this act. Thus, a work stoppage over health and safety is not necessarily prohibited by a contractual no-strike clause. Workers, uh, so workers that strike in a reasonable and good faith belief that their working conditions are abnormally dangerous may not be lawfully replaced. Now, there's a question about whether or not the Trump National Labor Relations Board would uh, be on your side if you get fired or permanently replaced for striking over unsafe working conditions, but it is the best hope that you have, okay? And I... You should not, I would not recommend, it's technically protected. If they went by the the, the um, letter of the law, you would be protected if you went out on strike by yourself over unsafe working conditions. But um, I don't know if they would, I don't know if they would uphold the letter of the law and um, you just don't have that much leverage by yourself. What you need to do if you are worried, if you know that somebody in your workplace has tested positive for the coronavirus, if you, uh, especially if it's somebody that you work closely with or that you know or you're in a workplace where just everybody works together, like have conversations with your coworkers about this. Ask them if they're worried about it too because, they, I mean, they should be. And I'm not saying that, you know, like you don't have to, uh, you don't have to demand that your boss close for two weeks. I would, I would even like, that's not, that's just not necessary, but I think it's reasonable, especially if you work in close quarters, um, it would be reasonable to request that your boss halt operations until everybody can be tested and their tests returned. Uh, and, and so everybody that's, that's, um, positive they they don't come into work for a while and request paid leave for those folks request paid leave for yourself those are incredibly reasonable things to ask and organizing is the best hope that you have in this situation if you don't know how to have these conversations reach out to us you can email organize at hsviww.org um and the IWW in Huntsville uh, will help you with these things. They'll help, like, walk you through, like, how should I, how should I be talking to my coworkers about about this? How should I gauge how upset they are about things like this? Um, and and we and, and the the IWW in Huntsville can help you kind of walk through maybe a game plan of escalating tactics and stuff like this. But uh, this is that's. I mean, that's going to be your best hope, relying on yourself and your fellow workers to demand that you be given a safe working environment. That's going to be the only thing that's going to be the best thing that is going to protect you. Okay, and and and, and that's what that's what David and I preach every week. You and your fellow workers, your brothers and sisters are your best hope. That's the way that change is going to happen. That's the way that you're going to have safe working conditions. That's the way that you're going to get better wages. That's the way that you're going to get paid leave. That's the way that you're going to get retirement. Anything. That is the way that it's going to happen. So I would encourage you to do that. I would encourage you to uh, consider that. And like I said, if you've got questions, you can email, uh, you, you can message the page, tweet us or something, um, or email the Huntsville IWW at organize at hsviww.org. 
This has been the Valley Labor Report, folks. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to keep up with us throughout the week, we uh, we release the show on YouTube. You can search for us at the Valley Labor Report. Like I said at the beginning of the show, we're on Twitter at Labor Reporters. I'm on Twitter at Jacob M underscore A L. David is on Twitter at Radical Unionist, spelled R I. R-A-D-I-C-L Unionist. You can support the show by going to patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. We would love for this to be a completely like viewer-funded enterprise and we wouldn't have to have any commercials. I think that would be great. We could have longer segments. We could have longer conversations, less interrupted conversations. I hate being interrupted. Um, you know, so if, if that's something that you want to see, the way to get that is by supporting us on patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. This has been the Valley Labor Report. We will see you next week.